Epiphany Church in Ligonier, Pennsylvania. Welcome to Epiphany's Podcast, a ministry of Epiphany Anglican Fellowship in Ligonier, Pennsylvania. Our church exists to help people discover and rediscover the love of God in the Christian gospel. For more information about our church, you can visit epiphanyligonier.org. Today, friends, is the Feast of All Saints, which is churchy language for the day we remember with gratitude uh, Christians who have gone before us. It's the day we give thanks to God for the hard work that past Christians have done that we have inherited. Christians in the past composed our prayer book, the liturgies that we use during our services. Christians in the past built this building that we are worshiping in. We inherited the hard work of some other Christians and what they did. Christians past have written books Um, And they have been real inspirations to us as we live our lives in the day-to-day. And Christians in the past were our parents, our grandmothers, our grandfathers, our mentors, our friends. Christians, you see, as a people, we are not lone wolves. We don't do this sort of thing by ourselves. We owe our faith and our current lives to God's work through Christians who have long since died leaving this world to be with Jesus. And so uh, All Saints, it's an odd context for us to go through our series today from the book of Genesis. We've been going through Genesis together now for some months, and we are reading from Genesis 25 today, um, the story of Isaac's um, generations, uh, the story of Isaac's children. And hopefully it will make sense by the time we're done why this reading here makes a lot of sense for our All Saints Sunday. In our reading, we meet a pair of twins who seem fated to a life of conflict with one another. Uh, We we have this recording that um, Isaac's wife, Rebecca, was seriously struggling with barrenness, and then Isaac prayed to God for kids. And as she is pregnant, she's feeling in her womb um, conflict between uh, two uh, children-to-be as opposed to just one. And God says, there are two nations in your womb who will be forever at conflict. The firstborn of these two twins, um, this pair of twins is Esau, who is notable for being a hairy baby at birth. And the second of these two twins born is Jacob. And the text tells us that he was born holding the right hand of his brother, the right ankle. He was holding his brother's ankle uh, when his brother exited the womb. I mean, the idea was that this this second born was reaching out to grab his brother, perhaps to pull him back in because he wanted to be the firstborn, Jacob did. In fact, the name Jacob means uh, he grabs by the heel, which is a Hebrew idiom for something like he who cheats. Um, That uh, Jacob's name from the very beginning means cheater. One son, the text tells us, is the hunter, the jock, the athlete, the outdoorsman. He wears camo, and it's all branded with Carhartt, and he has Yeti coolers and a furler, and he goes out hunting during archery and rifle season. It's in the text, I promise. 
Uh, the other son becomes the homebody, the cook, the white-collar worker, the thinker. He's watching Netflix and playing video games, and he doesn't even have a farmer's hand. His mother enjoys having him around the house, but the father prefers his hunter son because he keeps the freezer stocked with venison all winter long. So the first is a daddy's boy. The second is a mama's boy. You can't uh, not see how the text is setting up this great conflict. The foreshadowing here is obvious, that these two brothers are in for a life of conflict with one another. I mean, it's all going to be rooted in the family. And our text ends today in Genesis with a particular conflict about this idea of a birthright. Um, that these two brothers are struggling because they are twins, but one of them receives the title of firstborn child. And we in the Western world don't have a particular obsession with this sort of thing as they did in the ancient world. In the ancient world, to be the firstborn son was to have a number of extra things added to your birthright. First off was that you had a special relationship with your father that your father poured into, the father poured into the firstborn child um, to sort of raise and mentor him up as to how to be a leader of a family. Because the second part of the birthright was that when the father dies, the eldest son sort of took on the leadership role of the entire family and clan. And so if you have sort of multiple wives and lots of stepchildren and all of these people under your, under your wing, you need to be a particularly strong leader to keep everyone together. And that's what the firstborn was expected to do uh, when the father died. And finally, the third part of what it meant to have an ancient birthright was that you got a double share of the inheritance. So when Isaac dies, these twins, the estate will be divided amongst them, that is true, but it will be divided into three parts. Jacob will have one part, and Esau will have two parts. That's what it means to have a double share of the, of the inheritance. And you know, when you look at it, Jacob being a twin and being born 30 seconds later than his brother, I mean, that's a huge deal, right? That, that's, that's a lot of things you're missing out on by virtue of 30 seconds. And so you can see in our reading today that Jacob has this resentment towards his barely elder brother. And it comes forward, and we should not be surprised. What happens in our reading? Esau comes back from the field. Maybe he's hunting, maybe he's farming, maybe he's herding uh, the flocks. Jacob, on the other hand, has been whipping up lunch in the kitchen, a hearty red lentil stew. Whatever Esau was doing, he was famished. And so he comes in and says to his brother, hey, is that lentil soup for lunch? Fix me a bowl of that. Jacob says, sure, I'll fix you a bowl of soup, but it's gonna cost you. You can have a bowl of soup for the low, low price of your birthright. And that's absurd, right? Like a bowl of soup for all of these benefits of being the firstborn child? A third of the estate when the father dies? The leadership of the household? The special relationship with your dad? A bowl of soup for all of that, right? I mean, you know, um, give it up, says Jacob. Or as Seinfeld famously tells us, no soup for you. This isn't really a temptation, I have to tell you. Um, in our reading, it almost sounds like Esau's sitting there going, well, I'm going to die anyway because I'm so hungry. It doesn't really matter to me. It's not like they didn't have snacks in the ancient Near East, for Pete's sake. He got a snack. He would have been fine. And on top of this, he's in the middle of his family's camp. He's in the middle of his family's, like no one's going to let him die 
right? No one's going to let him die when he's in the middle of his family home and his brothers withholding uh, the soup and being a brat. But Esau doesn't have that mental calculation. He, he doesn't have that on his mind. He's so hungry and he can't fight it. He says, you know what? I'm going to die anyway of hunger. So uh, sure, I will do it. He swears away his birthright to his baby twin brother. The text tells us that Esau despised his birthright. And that's an odd word, but it's a word that kind of fits. Esau stands to inherit this massive chunk of his father's estate, his father's um, leadership of the family. And also, if you've been following this series, you know that um, if Isaac is doing his job right, he's not just sort of grooming his eldest son to be the head of the family and take care of the money and the livestock. He's also grooming his son to be the spiritual head of the family. This family has a deep and personal relationship with God, the God of the Old Testament, the God of Abraham, Isaac, but not Esau, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Um, this God, right, has been blessing and working intimately with this family for this greater plan that's still coming to fruition here. And so Esau doesn't just give up all of those things. He gives up a relationship with the God of the universe for a bowl of soup. So either Jacob is a really, really good cook or Esau is just a fool. Esau despised his birthright. And that sounds weird to say it out loud, but the fact that he traded something so valuable for something so mundane, despised is about the right word. And the implications of this transaction are gonna ripple throughout the history of the Old Testament. The event is critical to understanding the prophet Malachi, um, the book of Romans references it. The nation of Edom comes as a result of this. There's a whole bunch of things I can tell you about another day. But I wanna focus in on one specific reference to this event that we read about in Hebrews chapter 12 today. After spending in the book of Hebrews 11 chapters outlining how Jesus fulfills the vision of the Old Testament, the author of Hebrews switches gears to a pep talk of sorts. He exhorts the people um, reading and listening to this letter to keep their faith, despite serious persecution and doubts and other voices telling them to leave it behind. Here's five verses, read, and I'll read it to you from Hebrews, starting at verse 9. Therefore, lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weak knees, and make straight the paths for your feet, so that what is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather be healed. Strive for peace with everyone, for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. See to it that no one fails to obtain the grace of God, that no root of bitterness springs up and causes trouble, that it may become defiled, that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he decided to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears." The author of Hebrews is pointing out here that Esau's rejection of his birthright, the fact that he despised his birthright, it's a metaphor for what it's like to abandon hope in God and to give up your faith and to resign yourselves, ourselves, to the unholy and sinful ways of this world. Um, that to look at something so valuable and trade it for something so mundane, um, that the author of Hebrews says that's what it's like when we walk away from the Christian faith. We have traded that which is, at its core, the most valuable thing we could possibly want, 
And we have exchanged it for something as simple as a bowl of soup. And we could go down that road. We could talk about that today, friends. We could spend some time talking about the value of what we have and what the rest of the world gives. But I actually want to switch gears here because the author of Hebrews, you remember back in Hebrews chapter 11, if you know the book, spends a whole lot of time outlining what's called the Faith Hall of Fame, some people call it. Um, A review of all of these Old Testament characters who um, had this relationship with God based on faith and they did not give it up. And today is All Saints Day. Um, today is a day we recognize the people from our past, the Christians throughout our history, who did not give up their birthright for a bowl of soup. All Saints Day is a day we celebrate that a life of faith can be lived in these troublesome times. And to help you understand what the power of All Saints Day can be, what I thought I would do is I would give you my own reflections that I have this year on All Saints Um, So here's what I, when I come to All Saints this year, here's what I am grateful for. I'll tell you about three saints in particular that I am thankful for um, as we um, do this All Saints thing. And you can take this pattern for yourself if you like. So the first saint I am thankful for this All Saints Day is Saint Thomas Cranmer. Now, who is Thomas Cranmer? Um, Thomas Cranmer is sort of the original Anglican. Um, He authored the Book of Common Prayer. Um, He was uh, ministering and bringing Protestant theology and thought um, to the English Reformation in the 1600s. And I could go on and on because I like the guy, but there's one particular part of his life that I am thankful for. In his later years, Thomas Cranmer um, was assisting a a king in bringing Protestant theology to England, but that king died. And then a new queen took over the throne. Um, Her name was Mary, Queen of Scots. She did not like Protestant thought at all. She was very Roman Catholic, and she was very angry that the church had broken officially with Rome. You may have heard of Mary, Queen of Scots by her historical nickname, Bloody Mary. This is that Bloody Mary. She earned that nickname because she burned at least 300 Protestants uh, at the stake for remaining Protestant, not reverting back to Catholicism. And Thomas Cranmer was one of the people that she burned. Um, The story goes like this. Because Thomas Cranmer was um, sort of a chief architect in bringing the the gospel and its clarity to the people of England, um, uh, the, the queen said, he's someone who has to be made an example of. So he was thrown in prison. He was tried with heresy. He was in prison for over a year, isolated by himself. Um, They pressured him into signing recantations. He signed at least four of them. Um, They were published, but people could kind of tell that it was under duress. And finally, he was given the opportunity to get in front of people in a pulpit in an Oxford church and and proclaim it himself. And so he wrote his own little recantation, and it was approved, and he got up into the pulpit at this church, and the guards were nearby, but the people were there. What is Thomas Cranmer going to say? What's he going to do? And he starts reading his prepared remarks About halfway through, he starts to go off script. And he says, yeah, you should listen to the king and the queen. But all those recantations, I recant of my recantations. I don't care if I burn at the stake. I believe in the Christian gospel as outlined in the Lutheran and Protestant Reformation. And the first thing that will burn when I go to the stake is this darn hand that signed those recantations. 
And of course the crowd goes wild and everyone's going crazy and there's hubbub and the guards take him from right there and they lead him outside to the public square in Oxford where he is tied to the stake and burned. And true to his word, he shoves his hand first into the heart of the flame, shouting that unworthy hand. So why am I grateful for Thomas Cranmer? Um, I'm grateful for a life lesson about the perils of faith and politics during this election season, that he struggled with what it meant to obey his sovereigns, um, especially when you have Romans 13 saying that God is working through the head of a state, but also recognizing that the sovereign cannot, as someone summarized once, they cannot command what is forbidden, and they cannot forbid what is commanded. Jesus said those who live by the sword will die by the sword, and I think we can also say that those who live by their politics will lose by their politics. And so St. Thomas Cranmer shows us that ultimately the spiritual is more important than the political, a very timely word for us in 2020. I'm also grateful for St. Karl Barth. He's another Christian. This is the second saint I'm going to tell you about. He was a Christian who wrestled in his own way how to navigate the church and state issues of his own time. So Thomas Cramer was in the 1600s. Karl Barth was in the 1930s um, during the rise of national socialism in Germany and in Switzerland and across Europe. Um, Karl Barth's actually a big deal. It's hard to really overstate how influential he was in 20th century Christianity, and I can talk to you more about that another time if you're interested. Um, trivia, he was the only theologian to ever grace the cover of Time magazine. So you can go back to 1962 and find Karl Barth as his, oh, excuse me, and his picture on the cover of Time magazine. Um, but I'm grateful for Karl Barth in particular because one of the things that he was doing uh, during Hitler's rise to power in Germany was he was teaching a course at a seminary in Germany. And he was teaching a class on preaching. He was teaching future pastors how to get up in the pulpit like I am now and do what I'm doing to, to preach. And in those lectures, the students were asking him, you know, Professor Barth, you know, Hitler's coming to power. Churches are flocking to his cause. We recognize this is not so great. What do you recommend? Here's what he said about this incident later on in his commentary on Romans. He said this, state, church, society, family, a couple of organizations he talks about in Germany, and so forth. They live off the credulity of those who have been nurtured upon vigorous sermons delivered on the field of battle and others such like solemn humbug. Deprive them of their pathos and they will be starved out but stir up revolution against them, and their pathos is provided fresh fodder. And what he meant was this, that when anyone or anything comes to you with the intent of getting your support, and they're trying to get you riled, and they're trying to get you angry, and they're trying to give you this rush of adrenaline that comes from the promise of conflict, Karl Barth was saying they're, they're appealing to your pathos, you're being used. Um, that when Karl Barth says pathos, he's referring to what St. Paul calls in Romans 7, sinful passions of the heart. And so he's talking about this idea that the, the national socialism that's sweeping across Germany, he's suggesting that preachers can kind of take the wind out of people's sails by not getting riled up or angry or forcing the rush of adrenaline um, that the political realm at the time wanted to undertake. And make no mistake, every political advertisement you've seen over the past eight months Regardless of the party, every alarmist email in your inbox, every charged meme that is scrolled by your social media feeds has been someone gunning for your pathos to get you riled, to get you angry, and to get you ready for conflict. 
And so I'm grateful for someone like Karl Barth who can point that out and give me lessons on how to preach at a time when the political realm has been grasping for our collective pathos and using it to achieve its ends. So let me take some wind out of your sails this morning, a la Karl Barth. As Christians, we believe that God is in heaven, that Jesus rose from the dead, and our sins will not be counted against us, and everything one day will be made right. If we believe this, it does not matter who wins the election on Tuesday. It will have zero cosmic significance. It will not change the most important thing in your life. If Jesus rose from the dead, who cares who wins on Tuesday? Now, as they say in the South, the preacher has gone from preaching and gone to meddling. So let me move on to one last saint. My third and final saint that I want to talk about this morning is Saint Audrey of Garfield. I'm talking about Beth's grandmother, my wife's grandmother, Audrey Prettyman, who died from COVID in August. It was a sad situation. Everyone called her Nan, and um, she never got to meet her great-grandson in person. And you know this, right, that saints are just normal people who don't sell their birthright. Saints are not particularly holy people like Mother Teresa types. That's not what the Bible calls a saint. The saint is someone who keeps their faith till the very end, who doesn't sell their birthright for something mundane. And Beth's grandmother, Audrey Prettyman, was a saint. And the reason I'm grateful for her um, this year is because of a story I learned at her funeral. When Grandma Audrey was raising Beth's mother in the local school system, she had a gathering at her house of local parents. And this was right after the integration of the school system. And so one of the parents who was there in this meeting at her house was black. And of course, we're not that far out of, of a generation of segregation. And it was odd enough having a black woman in a white family's living room as a guest. But after a generation, of course, you know, those things were breaking down. And during the meeting, this black mother had a, another child, a small child, and she needed to go change the baby's diaper. And so she excused herself to go out to the car to change the child's diaper. It was, of course, odd enough to have the woman in the living room, but to invite this woman into the bathroom or the bedroom or to another room would have been not just odd, but taboo in some circles. But not for Audrey. Audrey, in her matter-of-fact, blue-collar Pittsburgh mindset, was almost offended. What are you talking about, she said. Just use the bedroom. The black woman responded, are you sure? And Audrey said, yeah. Why are you going out to the car? Very thick Pittsburgh accent. Great-grandma, Audrey. And so in a world that was having trouble desegregating and integrating the public schools, Audrey had very little problem integrating her own household. I'm thankful for Audrey because she was an example of how when the larger problems of racism or poverty or economic hardship or virus matters overwhelm our ability to fix them, we don't need to despair. That when the problems of the world seem so big and impossible to solve, we don't have to worry about everything that's going on outside of our circle. Instead, we can look to these problems in our own communities, in our own living rooms, and ask where in our own orbit do we need to bring some change? And instead of feeling powerlessness because everything seems so big, we can simply focus on our own circles. Some traditions call this the principle of subsidiarity, that things should be handled at the lowest level possible. And Audrey is a reminder to me of that this year. To give thanks to God for his saints is to acknowledge that God is at work in our daily lives through other people, which is his promise in the church 
And if everyone around us has made the decision to cling to their birthright instead of exchanging it for a bowl of lentil soup, well, that's going to make things easier for us to do the same thing. And so, dear friends, cling to the Christian gospel with everything you have. Take the promises found in Jesus' death and resurrection and never let go. Never let go of the fact that you are forgiven. Put your hope and, and life into the world to come, not in the world today. Nothing else could be possibly as important or as satisfying, not even Jacob's red lentil soup. In Jesus' name, amen. Church in Ligonier, Pennsylvania.